Okay, today we have the pleasure of recording our first show live in San Jose with James Chung, the CEO of the Akana Company. As our guest speaker, James brings more than 20 years of experience as one of the top retail brokers in the country and started his own brokerage firm in 2021. Prior to launching the firm, he spent 18 years with global commercial real estate brokerage Cushman and Wakefield, most recently in the position of executive managing director and as the head of retail for the Western United States. Hey, James, how are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Great. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on the show, not only because our fellow Cal graduates will appreciate hearing from alumni, but because I know the listeners will benefit from your depth of experience, both as a real estate entrepreneur and retail expert. So James, how are things going since starting Iconic in 2021? They've been going absolutely fantastic. Uh, We've been uh, very humbly received by the real estate community and uh, couldn't be happier how we've kicked off the first 24 months of, of the uh, of the company. Currently, we represent over 19 million square feet of product in the Nyberry counties, uh, in addition to over 100 national and regional retailers, ranging from big box tenants down to local and regional uh, concepts in the market. Congratulations. Do you primarily operate in the nine counties of the Bay Area? Uh, Our agency business, uh, which is often referenced as our listing business, is primarily based out of the nine Bay Area counties. However, uh, we do take tenants uh, both in their expansion locally and nationally. Got it. Um, And how has your team grown since the inception of Iconic? And what are some of the most important things to keep in mind when hiring a team? That's a great question. Uh, We are very very thoughtful and intentional when bringing on new team members. Uh, it's very much a qualitative process. Uh, we, there is no mandate for growth at this point. Uh, as I mentioned really early on, uh, when starting Econic, uh, I drew the analogy of wanting to create SEAL Team 6 uh, and not the Navy. And, and what I meant by that was to really engage uh, and our goal was to partner with those who aligned not only with our standard and our ethos, uh, but ultimately people who we respect in the industry and ultimately could raise the tide for all of us. Got it. And uh, bringing together such an excellent team with people in their own right doing really great work. How's the dynamic between the different team members and are people really working on deals alone uh, in a vacuum or are people collaborating here at Iconic? 100%. It's, uh, you know, one thing that I that I took with me um, after leaving Cushman and Wakefield, you know, after 18 years, um, well, I took a lot of things with me. Those things that I actually wanted to employ as part of my company, uh, but also things that I, I did not want to bring along. And culturally, we are a very transparent firm. Um, we are a very inclusive firm. And while we may not partner and work on every project together, uh, the the environment is incredibly collaborative, collaborative and one where we hope that we can ultimately create the best version of that agent. And what I mean by that is that by creating a foundation and an environment where one feels that they can thrive and be authentic and ultimately become, again, that best version of themselves, both personally and professionally. Excellent. And what are some of the biggest successes or challenges that you've experienced in starting the company? That's another great question. It's 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 been a very, again, humbling journey, and I mean that in the most positive sense. Uh, we are constantly going head to head with the more established global firms um, in the Bay Area uh, when it comes to new assignments and accounts, and uh, it's a very classic David and Goliath story, uh, but one that uh, we hope that we are winning more than we are losing, and um, while we have we hold our competitors in the highest regard and, and call many of them friends and dear friends at that. Um, it's also a very competitive business and one where we are excited to be included in 
what we hope to be almost every conversation. And what are some of the kinds of efficiencies that a smaller group might have over a larger group? Are you able to move more quickly when it comes to sourcing deals and uh, leverage relationships more? I think it's really more about, uh, because ultimately, even in a larger company setting, you're still acting somewhat autonomously. So the ability to be nimble and fleet-footed really is more applied to how the company is run, uh, our our, our ability to access resources, our ability to engage new resources, our ability to engage new technology. Um, And really, technology has leveled the playing field. Uh, So you could argue that we have every technology we ever had, you know, at, at, at our previous firm and then some, and but we're able to be very bespoke and intentional with what we are actually getting because it's, it's hyper-focused on our retail vertical versus when you're at a larger firm, it could be technology that may be a one-size-fits-all for capital markets, industrial, office, multifamily, you know, you name it when in fact there rarely are, you know, uh, uh, there's really a, a solution for all, all the various siloed verticals, if you will. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense that the larger brokerage firms are going to be using the same technology across all product types while retail is very specific in many ways, uh, especially with like leakage analyses and understanding site selection. So, um, when it comes to sourcing new clients and deals, what what are some of the technologies that you're using? And um, are prop tech companies competing with you like tenant rep posting websites? Great question. It's funny, technology really hasn't found its way into the business development arena for our discipline. And what I mean that by that, I'm not dismissing the farming technology and uh, technologies that are focused on information gathering, at which point you could leverage that information to pursue an opportunity. Um, I, but I would tell you that as antiquated as it may sound, our business is, I would argue, 90 to 100% based on relationships and your body of work in the market. And it's one where, yes, while there is still a a very organic approach to business development in certain ways, there's also very much a relationship-based environment where there's a a continued and ongoing collaboration with both friends, partners, clients in the market that ultimately results, whether directly or indirectly, into business opportunities. And you may ask, well, then how does a new broker win business? How does, a, how does somebody go chase business down? There, again, you, it, it's as old as a tale of time, as time, of time, right? You can go and cold call and call every owner on the street, but the reality is the type of assets we work on, the type of clients we work with, they actually need social proof of who they are engaging. So when they go to our website and you see that we represent arguably you know, almost every REIT in the barrier that does not do their own leasing, you know, the other REITs feel safe with that because they're like, well, gosh, if they hire them, then, you know, there's a, there's a safety in that decision logic. Definitely. And prior to that, the safety often came in the form of large companies, right? But in retail, it's very different. And similarly, even on the tenant or occupier side, a lot of times, believe it or not, a lot of these tenants are actually doing a ton of to- due diligence in the market to actually find even the, f- the five that they want to interview. And, a lo- and the approach is often going to these larger REITs and asking them, hey, if you were us, you know, who would be the three to five men or women that you would want to represent you in this, in this market? And while that's a very high level way of business development, really for us, and I always encourage our team there's nothing that replaces touch points. And those touch points can come in the form of podcasts like this. 
those touch points can come in the form of attending ICSE, where you met the team and now we're, we're doing this. Those, they can come in the form of a lunch or a meeting or a cup of coffee with somebody. Um, but ultimately, nothing can or will ever replace this interaction even that you and I are having right now. And my, my impression of you, even after meeting you in person versus on the phone, couldn't be more different. And not that it was positive or negative, just it's different, I'm sure, as as I am to you. Yeah, naturally meeting someone in person is a totally different experience. But I would tell you, I joked with the team as well that you're always being interviewed. And that is on every email, every text, every meeting, every phone call. And those aggregate over time. And yes, the longer you're in the business, the more you recognize, the, the obviously the larger body of work you have behind you. But at the end of the day, it's one where you build a brand, you build a reputation, and yes, you're never solely relying on that, and you're always trying to be a better version of yourself today than you were yesterday. But again, you have to do a little bit of everything in order to do that. But the prop tech, the the actual, <laughs> believe it or not, is really not something we leverage in our business development. And and if you were to look at the last 20 assignments that we've won, none of not a single has come from that. Got it. Uh, going off of that, how has your past experience and the reputation that you made for yourself made it so that you could start the Akana company? And did your clients come uh, from Cushman and Wakefield to the Akana company or are now working with you here? Well, it's interesting, as I mentioned before, even being part of a larger firm, the business development, yes, while there are leads that come in through the company, um, the more successful agents in those environments typically are the ones developing those relationships and, and executing on those relationships. Um, yes, a lot of the clients did choose to come with me. However, when I left, I simply gave them, gave them notice of the move I was making and ultimately it was up to them whether they choose or chose to, to come with me or not. There was never an invitation or a solicitation it was 100%. And most of these people I've known my entire career. And so there are a lot of them I call friends. And when we had the conversation, I, I would have never have held any negative emotion towards anyone who decided not to move forward. It, it would, it, it, that's a, it's a professional decision that has to be made. Um, luckily, we had very little, if any, of that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's one, it's, you know, that decision that they made to join us in this new journey uh, was not taken lightly. In fact, if anything, even feeling a higher accountability to raise that standard and, and to confirm that they made the right decision. And um, when it comes to the work that you're doing for your clients on the ground and finding sites that might work for them for their requirements. What are some of the key considerations and desirable features of a site and how, do, how does that fit into the research that your company does for your clients, such as traffic counts, rents, lease structuring, TIs? Sure. Uh, that's Again, these are all great questions. The Unfortunately, there's uh, not a Again, some are, uh, uh, one, there's not one single answer that can actually be appropriate to answer your question, only because whether you're in pursuit or on behalf of a coffee tenant or a Michelin star restaurant or a large format restaurant or a lifestyle tenant or a big box tenant. Um, so it really varies, but I would say fundamentally what people are looking for from a baseline information standpoint, yes, they need demos. They want to understand what the community around it looks like. Um, they want to understand what the customer profile is. So yes, we do have to run demographics, understand even as basic as how many Asians uh, live in a three mile radius. What's their annual, or, I mean, average versus household income. What's their education levels. And yes, while many may think that's, uh, stereotyping or uh, ultimately being, uh, you know, politically incorrect. Um, unfortunately, if you're an Asian grocer and you sell Asian product and your customer base is primarily Asian, which I clearly am, 
you're going to want to know how many Koreans and Japanese and Chinese live in this market. And then there's nothing biased about it, but simply it's to formulate their decision logic to make a very expensive business decision. And so that's one where, um, but yes, traffic counts matter, all those things. But I will tell you, nothing will ever replace actually going and seeing a site. So everything could be perfect on paper, but you could go to the, go to the location and you're going to find something different that you could never find on Google Maps, on Street View, on whatever. And that's something that ultimately, again, which is interesting, and, and especially in Silicon Valley where everything is so tech forward, um, nothing actually replaces windshield time. Yeah. So are you going boots on the ground to each site before you bring them to your different clients? Or is it more like when they express some interest, you'll go and do additional research? Oh, no, 100%. We're, we're constantly driving the market. And, and again, after call it, you know, 20, 21 years now, um, when I'm look, when I'm referencing an opportunity, I've driven it more, more, most likely many, many times. Had If I haven't, though, I won't present an opportunity until I fully understand it. And that does mean driving it. That does mean digging in because we're hired to be the experts. We're hired to be their real estate eyes. And our job is to filter the good, wipe out the bad, and ultimately present the opportunities that we find fit their need. And we're hired to do that, which is also, you know, makes our role even that much more important. Because if you think about it, when you have an out-of-state client and all they are seeing is what you show them, you are their lens into the real estate market. And so that there's a gravity and weight and responsibility that goes with that. And that's why they hire us because they don't want to see a hundred sites. They want to see five and they know that, you know, what they're looking for and, and, those five attributes are going to, or those five sites are all going to be reflective of what they are ultimately looking for, which again is different for every tenant. Thank you. And what are the key drivers of demand in retail and how does market analysis fit into the work that you do? You kind of touched on that before in the last question, but uh, in an environment of rising interest rates, if consumer spending dries up, how does that affect your business and your clients? Oh, and, and 100% does. And it's more in consumer confidence. And so with inflation, consumer confidence has definitely come down. There's a direct correlation with gas prices and consumer spending. Um, but sure, so the, the macroeconomic headwinds that we have been unfortunately feeling the last, call it 12 months, um, 100% affect, I would say, more so the investment community than it does the leasing market. And while, yes, a lot of people are on the sidelines on the leasing market, yes, people are pausing, you know, the lease terms that we are typically negotiating with primary and option periods are for the next 10, 20, 30 years. So unfortunately, or fortunately, they are taking a much longer term approach and outlook and there could be two or three more cycles within their leasehold. And so they have to almost see past what's happening today. And even a transaction you signed today, they could ultimately end up opening to the public in a year, 18 months, depending on plans, permits, construction time. So really, unlike the investment market where they are directly correlated with the debt market. Um, it's The leasing market is really more focused on a longer-term outlook. So based on that, it seems like uh, actually in a downturn in the market is the time to put together a long-term lease. So do you actually see some of your clients seeing the current environment as an opportunity? Uh, yes and no. So I would tell you that there has, similar to what happened during the financial crisis, there has been a, an unusual flight to quality um, where now because of what may seem like an opportunity has created more pressure and demand on the, on the existing inventory, the inventory especially that's well anchored, well positioned uh, in a good geography. Um, in fact, macroeconomically, we're seeing nationally that the vacancy rate is at a all-time low since 2007. So 
give or take, it's at about 5.7%. And there, and there's another reason for that, and which I think is part of a another question I think you're asking further down the line as it relates to new development. Uh, because of the lack of retail development and net new product actually coming to the market, that has also put an additional demand and pressure on existing inventory. And so really, since COVID, we've actually seen... Uh, for premier retail space, and a lot of that's being led by the uh, food and beverage sector, right, has actually increased. So the, the, the rents have actually gone up, the occupancy costs have gone up, rather than flattened or even gone down. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, and I've heard from a few different people that the data shows retail being overbuilt in the U.S., uh, that there's a large supply of retail and uh, not so much demand, but from your perspective, that flight to quality makes it so that the older product is kind of being phased out. And at a certain point, we will see new retail development. When, when do you kind of expect that to happen? And how long is the product and development cycle on that? That's a, a really good question. And unfortunately, uh, a crystal ball question that I'm not sure I have the answer to. Um, however, the highest and best use question has been asked in, since I've gotten into the business, right? And that, that applies to everything. That applies to office, industrial, housing, uh, retail. I think retail has really led the headlines more as it relates to conversions, repurposing, older malls being torn down, being turned into housing or whatever it may turn into, um, but I believe in my heart that as these properties evolve and metamorphosize into, again, a different version of what they are today, I don't look at that negatively. Um, I really feel like some of the retail, yes, across the country does need to be repurposed. Some of the retail does actually need to go away. And maybe what was relevant and appropriate 30 years ago just isn't the case. People's behaviors change, their their tastes change, their desires change. Um, the way we shop has obviously changed. Uh, so there's and so we need to continue to adapt. We need to continue to evolve in parallel, obviously with the world. But it's one where I think, unfortunately, because people only get to digest the information that's presented to them, only a portion of the story is really being told. Whereas, you know, a lot of times, you know, again, for retail, they're ultimately, I, there are a handful of developments even happening now in the Bay Area, ground up developments that are actually retail focused. And it's one where they're not announced yet. They're current, currently being entitled. But again, they're just happening. But, you know, as it's a 5, 10, 15, 20 year horizon. Uh, so, so you're saying that developments are happening right now, and it's because of that flight to quality where the new product is able to be leased uh, relatively easily. Yes and no. I mean, it has to be, uh, unfortunately, it has to be the highest and best use. And, what, and unfortunately, it's not as linear as that, the correlation. Um, but I would say, yes, there is a demand for well-anchored ground-up product in the market the bigger question becomes for whatever geography or, or parcel or property you're looking at, is it the best, highest and best use for that particular site? And that's a site-specific question. And, and ultimately, it has to be in line with the general plan of each city. It has to be aligned with, obviously, the owners of the property. So there are a lot of influencing metrics and and, and attributes that need to all be unfortunately in unison, right, to make something happen. But yes, overall, there is a, a demand for for retail development. I would say the biggest hurdle for that retail development to actually unfold and materialize is that because of the wave of multifamily development and office development in the last, call it 10 years, that has ultimately changed the fundamental land values, which Again, when you're going vertical 10 stories versus staying, staying single-story retail, the math is pretty simple, right? You can pay more for land because you're going and building up and, go, and building more product, more leasable product. Uh, so that's really where the delta is. But again, that's a completely different podcast that we could do at a later date. 
Sounds great. Uh, very interesting. So let's talk a bit about e-commerce versus brick and mortar and kind of the efficiencies uh, that can be found in pursuing both um, routes to, to get customers. How, how important is um, having a brick and mortar for a company that does e-commerce? Incredibly important. In fact, I think we have seen more digitally native brands create a storefront more in the last 10 years, uh, gosh, than we have arguably ever. And part of the reason being, whether it's the Untuckets of the world, whether it's the Warby Parkas of the world, um, what used to be adversarial is actually 100% uh, harmonious in a way where there doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be an or. There can be a consumer experience that engages both online and in-store. I know personally, when I shop in-store, I always leave with things that I had zero intention of buying. Yeah, definitely. And or recognizing things I saw online that actually looked completely different than what I thought it would look like in person. But having said that, there's still a place to buy things online and to walk into a store and be able to touch and feel and experience and really engage a brand. And when I say engage, that's being able to look at the person in the eye, to be able to ask questions, to be able to touch and feel. And ultimately, there, I think that collision is now seen positively rather than negatively, both even on a small scale to larger scale, whether you're talking like the Lululemons or Viore's of the world, and even on a small scale, in fact, we had a conversation yesterday with a client who um, does arguably three and a half to four times online. They, did, they do out of their one street front location, and they are looking to expand both locally and nationally. And But again, they do not see that interface negatively at all. In fact, they are looking and are able to track their customer base and now want to open in those communities based on the data that they have from their online sales. Fascinating. And um, I've also noticed that certain tenants, there will be collaboration between them. Like you might have a Kohl's with a Sephora in it or uh, something of the like. How how do you see collaboration between the different clients that you're working with? And have you had any um, locations where you've put more than one tenant in the same space together? Uh, That's that's an interesting question, only because none of us have ever really understood how or why. A lot of times, um, what they will do is become what they call licensees. Uh, Not franchisees, but licensees. Like when you go into Target and you see Starbucks, right? Or you see CVS inside of a Target. I think uh, the collabs are uh, very few and far between, actually. Um, Some work, some don't. And there's definitely good and bad examples. I mean... Obviously, not to to speak poorly about a, a bad decision, but you know it, it's all over Netflix, so it's hard not to talk about. But with Theranos, right, and and their collaboration with Walgreens and Safeway, obviously was not a success. Sure. But you have, I think, with CVS going into Targets and Starbucks being in Targets as well, and or Safeways, I think uh, there is very much a natural fit and natural marriage there. Uh, where both can benefit. Um, what's interesting, though, there was a time even we did a ground-up shopping center, and there were actually, believe it or not, three Starbucks in one shopping center. So we had a Target and a Safeway that barbelled the shopping center. Each had a Starbucks, and then we did a net new corporate store in the middle. And strangely enough, all of them were very successful and continued to be successful. And moving away from kind of multi-tenant spaces, more toward um, triple net, standalone kind of investment grade retail spaces, uh, which I know is a huge market and really important for the 1031 exchange market as well. Um, Do you have any clients that you've worked on build to suit or uh, turnkey ready developments? And do your clients ever come to you looking to maybe source developers to work with or find the sites for them to do the developments themselves? 100%. We're always looking for development opportunities, both for our clients and for ourselves. And uh, whether it's on a smaller scale or large scale, um, I would say the fee simple simple acquisition 
community in the Bay Area is very tough and very tight, arguably one of the tightest in the country. Um, they do surface every now and again. And yes, they often are led um, usually by tenants with requirements in certain markets. Uh, but again, that can come in many shapes and forms. But yes, as it relates to even a previous question, um, you know, the triple net lease environment um, has definitely been impacted by interest rates continuing to rise. And there's a direct correlation, obviously, with cap rates and interest rates and um, really how uh, the fundamental values are created and perceived. But yes, obviously, the 1031 market, uh, it continues to remain strong. But again, the inventory in the market, unfortunately, uh, is very light. So, and always has been, truthfully. So, good or bad market, I mean, the barrier just the barrier to entry is always and continues to be incredibly high. Got it. Got it. And with a lack of liquidity in the market uh, and not as many deals happening, how hard is it to pinpoint where cap rates are at and uh, kind of what the financials are behind these deals? Uh, well, again, they're all the cap rates are based on credit. They're based on geography, they're based on the tenant, they're based on the community. And yes, I think you will have a natural compression of cap rates by having barrier product. So you are gonna pay more for barrier product just by virtue of being in the barrier. Um, but at the end of the day, yes, there is, a, you know, again, just a direct correlation with the, both on the capital market side and even the triple net lease environment that, you know, if people are, uh, I think more on the sidelines now uh, than they were, call it a year ago, um, for obvious reason. But it's something that, again, like anything else, is cyclical, and we hope that uh, you know the Feds will will start to reverse uh, the uh, the motion of our. That's right of our economy here, and uh, you know. But again, uh, they know more than I do, and I know they are doing things to solve for problems that may or may not have been created by them or others and we're uh, we're all in this together so it's a matter of time and as retail relates to other product types and uh when investors are looking for different places to park their money how how do you see the strength or weakness of retail compared to other product types it's all really more based on credit and quality of what you're looking at. So if you're going for class A office versus class A retail, um, I would say now it's probably a better time to look at retail with, with the volatility of the office market. Um, having said that, um, you know, a lot of the retail here, again, the most coveted product in the capital markets environment for the Bay is the grocery anchor product. Um, and there is very little trading um, in that investment community uh, that is you know, high quality grocery anchor products. So, um, if you were to say pound for pound, what would I choose? Um, I speak retail and understand it. So I will always lean towards retail, uh, in uh, knowing where and how to create the value, um, in the event of the twists and turns that may happen throughout, you know, obviously, you know, with the asterisk that you're buying it correctly and you're not inheriting a rent roll that is uh, not appropriate um, or maybe, you know, way above market, not replaceable, I should say. Um, but again, it just depends on it's just geography, it's it's quality of product. Again, it's, uh, you know, who's signing on the lease and what kind of term and uh, and really your approach. So are you a value add, you know, investor? Are you looking for more, you know, core assets that are basically coupon clippers? Are you and again, are you representing a fund? Are you, again, sole proprietor? So there's so many uh, questions that need to be answered to answer that appropriately. But ultimately, um, I think retail, good quality retail is, is still a safe bet. Let's talk a little bit about grocery anchored shopping centers. And I know uh, before you said that's one of the most desirable product types in the Bay Area. Um, is that because it's more resilient in a downturn, uh, you know, selling like staples, consumer staples and something along those lines? It is, it's always been very desirable uh, for a few reasons. One being um, it creates daily trips. So when you have the hub and the spokes of the smaller concept that may merchandise around them, you know that that Safeway, that Whole Foods, that ethnic grocer, is going to draw daily trips. Uh, maybe not from you seven days a week, but ultimately 
it could be two to three times you are visiting a shopping center because of them. And by virtue of that, they hope to benefit from the exhaust from that trip from you. Um, It's continued to remain desirable from even a tenant standpoint through good and bad markets, as we've seen again through the financial crisis and during COVID. So the the product type has remained desirable both from a, a tenant side and from a from the investment community. And that's where when you, when, when good to your point, when things go bad, they, that environment typically remains fairly stable, if not thrives. Got it. And that's because of the different um, people that will come and visit the shopping center based on the necessity of going to the grocery store. So I want to ask you based off of that, how disruptive is grocery delivery services when it comes to the stability of shopping centers for the other tenants, not necessarily the grocery store, because they're going to have Instacart, whoever else coming and picking up the groceries, dropping them off at apartment buildings where now I've heard they have uh, refrigerators in the lobby to store your groceries while you're out working and whatnot. And a lot of people aren't doing as much grocery shopping in person. So how does that affect the other tenants? I think the the COVID experience for all taught us a lot of things, both good and bad. Uh, yes, the exhaust from your trip to the grocery store when you're never leaving your vehicle and waiting for someone to bring the grocery to your car. And so it becomes a very purposeful event for you. Um, it doesn't matter where you are at that point and you're not really doing anything else or seeing anything else. Uh, yes, 100% had a negative impact, but I would argue that COVID ultimately impacted everybody negatively just on its own. Um, but really the, the Instacart uh, concept, the delivery service, there hasn't really been a noticeable change in the environment and or dem- demand to be part of that merchandising mix. So when we're working with, whether they're restaurateurs, they're soft good tenants, they're uh, hard good tenants, um, when there is a good opportunity in a well-positioned anchored shopping center environment, they always want to know or hear about it. And they don't really care that they're doing deliveries or not. Um, But will that change over time? We'll see. Very very interesting, James. And uh, to move on to the signature question of the podcast, what's the use um, where do you currently see the greatest opportunity in retail uh, as far as locations, you know, next tier markets, uh, the Sun Belt versus gateway markets, and as far as product type is concerned, uh, you know, standalone triple net, grocery anchored shopping centers we touched on a bit, big box, mixed use. I know outlets are growing tremendously with people not wanting to be indoors doing their shopping and kind of... Uh, having those luxury retailers offering discounts is a really great opportunity right now and to have outdoor space. And and then how important is timing in this market as well? All great questions. Uh, well, macroeconomically, we're looking at the seventh consecutive quarter of positive net absorption. And this is being led by, obviously, the major metros that you would assume, Chicago, Phoenix, Atlanta, Denver, Dallas, D.C., and New York. Um, so really there's been a huge upswing coming out of COVID, um, as far as, so when you're asking about opportunities, um, really you can look in these major metros and see how the difference between two years ago and today and how it's evolved since then. But whether it's on a high street, like upper fifth Ave or Rodeo drive, or whether it's in a grocery anchored or even general merchandiser anchored shopping environment, um, really, there's been a renewed focus uh, to, again, the quality retail. And that quality retail, again, is defined in many ways. Um, opportunity-wise, I would say here for the Bay Area, there's been a unusual amount of larger format anchor inventory that we have not seen in some time. And that larger format inventory I'm referencing, call it 10 to, you know, a couple hundred thousand square feet. Got it. And power centers, 
Well, big boxes, right? And so uh, those big boxes, whether they were a Bed Bath & Beyond, whether it was a previous Kohl's, whether it was a Macy's, whether it was a Sears, um, there's just been an odd influx of inventory that truthfully, like again, I don't, in my career, I've never seen before. Um, and coupled with, I think, a, um, a smaller pool of tenants looking in that size range. You're saying vacant inventory. Correct. Correct. So when you're asking about opportunity, I would say if there is a unique opportunity right now, if you are a larger format tenant to really create a footprint in the Bay Area um, and have opportunities that truthfully probably won't be opportunities in my lifetime again. And uh, But ultimately, it's one where there hasn't been a correlating softening of rents. So the expectations are still there, uh, despite the inventory. And there's a lot of uh, even vacant box space where the previous tenant is still paying rent. So the perception of what is versus actually what is happening behind the curtains are, are very different. Um, but that I would tell you is a very unique, um, this is a unique moment in time for that particular category thematically again, but there's, there are deals happening and oftentimes you won't even see it, even though we are, let's say make a anchor deal two years ago and they opened today, you know, those transactions were done a long, long time ago. But again, I, I would just this this moment in time has just been a bit of a head scratcher on, on why um, there is more space more than anything else. And how are the owners of those spaces, you know, tempering their expectations going forward? Uh, do you see maybe some of these properties might go into special servicing or default on their loans and have vacancy for longer periods of time, or is the demand there from tenants at the right? pricing at uh, there's definitely demand at the right pricing but there's also you know most of the folks that seem to be uh in an ownership position a lot and a lot of these larger format spaces are 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 not typically leveraged very heavily uh if at all and um they they are patient um and or have patient capital and so they would rather make uh, and wait for the right deal than hastily make a deal to solve a short-term problem and in, in turn creating a longer-term problem um, when the market does resurface and recover in for that category. Um, but again, there's also the conversation that is continually happening as it relates to highest and best use, like we addressed earlier. So sometimes some of these larger boxes are not meant to be retail. And and it was in what we have seen even more so in the last few years and in the last call it ten to twenty, are are it, you know the influx of alternative uses wanting to penetrate retail communities. That could be auto. That could be auto and service. It could be medical. Um, it could be industrial. Uh, it could be multifamily. So really, again, there is a unique sort of demand for the real estate, it may not just not come in the form of retail. That creates a whole nother set of issues as it relates to zoning, CCNRs, use exclusives, which again, could be a, 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 an, its own po podcast on its own. But again, if you're asking for opportunity, I would say that is the segment. How important, and you kind of touched on this uh, when it comes to the cycle, but where do you think we're at in the cycle right now, heading into recession? I've heard a lot of people saying there's there's a lot of differing views right now, so I'd be very interested to get your take. Yeah, no, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to tell you my opinion, right, wrong, or indifferent. I feel like we definitely have um, a little bit more runway uh, as it relates to uh, getting into a... a an uncertain and unstable environment, um, economically speaking. Um, I don't think it's that long, though. I, I think we're probably 12 to 18 months, 12 to 18 months to a, call it repositioning. And uh, while I don't think there'll be a full recovery in that time frame, I think we'll at least feel the turn and things starting to head the right direction uh, versus continually, continuing downward. And it feels like already things have already somewhat stabilized uh, as it relates to, 
you know, the, the big changes that were happening and the big announcements that the Fed were making, uh, those seem to happen very frequently, uh, you know, at the, in 2022. Whereas I feel like now, despite only being in February, it, just from a gut feeling and overall, you know, climate feel, like when you walk outside and it feels, you know, 75 degrees out, I would tell you that, you know, I, we're, we're not there yet, but we'll be heading in the right direction soon enough. And how do you see the appetite for risk among the REITs currently uh, when it comes to new acquisitions? Uh, believe it or not, there's still a ton of dry powder uh, in the market and people have money that they need to place and capital that needs to be placed. And there's a ton of these funds, life insurance companies, uh, university endowments, um, you name it. There are a, a lot of active funds looking in the market now and would tell you that would probably be in a position to be very aggressive in a pursuit of a well-positioned, well-anchored shopping center. And it would be a competitive environment when and if those opportunities surfaced. Uh, but again, there is still a ton of dried powder that needs to be, and wants to be placed. And if they're going to do it, they'd like to do it in places like the Bay Area. Well, that's great to hear that it's not all doom and gloom. Certainly, there's been a lot of upheaval in the market, but, you know, I love retail. I love going shopping and uh, seeing the different spaces, walking them. uh, It really creates the environment and community. How important is placemaking for your tenants and kind of creating spaces that are going to be exciting and draw people? Uh, Incredibly important. In fact, uh, we just ended a call with a, a REIT, uh, a very large REIT out of the East Coast, and uh, they referenced it as dwelling time. And what they, they want to keep the customer engaged and on property as long as humanly possible. And they want to, and they, to do that, they have to recreate and reimagine, right, how the shopper likes to experience things. And that could even include the climate. Is it colder in this part of the Bay Area than it is potentially in the South Bay? Or what are the wind patterns? Where's the sun shining the most in the... Sh- I mean, we're talking the smallest details of details. and But a placemaking, especially um, in larger shopping center environments, is arguably top three concerns. And uh, it, it's one where people want to even merchandise shopping centers to placemake and to create, call it moments, and to create an environment that ultimately has a gravitational pull that will continue to ultimately give the opportunity to tenants to do more business, which ultimately gives the landlord the opportunity to potentially raise rents over time. Because again, going back to the fundamentals of health ratios, the sales to occupancy, and there's a continual lift across the board, right, where everybody's succeeding. And yes, so to your point, yes, it's it's very much top of mind. Are any of the leases that you're structuring have some sort of um, like gross sales clause, percentage of gross sales that the ownership might be able to share in? And, and what typical deals would that be? So uh, percentage rent is something that has leaked out of the malls and opener lifestyle centers into the general retail market. It was never really anything you saw, you know, call it 15 years ago, outside of a high-end elevated open-air center or, you know, enclosed mall environment. And the, the misperception is that it is something that only the landlord is benefiting from. Because oftentimes a landlord may provide a percentage rent opportunity in exchange for a lower starting base rent. So they're, they're sharing risk, if you will. However, there are also times where it is a premier retail opportunity and they want to share the success because they are providing the tenant a great space in a great shopping environment where they know they will thrive and they will create thresholds and negotiating points based on an agreed upon number. So for example, typically we'll see it from anywhere from call it four to 8%, right? And you more often than not, do it over a natural breakpoint. Is that gross or net? 
uh, that would be well. I'm talking about their uh, their their net base rent, so not including triple nets. Got it. So, but their base rent you divide it by the percentage, right? And that'll give you the natural breakpoint, right? The annual rent. Okay, so uh, but not including triple nets, and so whatever, wh- wherever you negotiate that number, and let's say it's it's a three million dollar natural breakpoint. Anything above that three million, then you pay the negotiated percentage rent. Um, but really, percentage rent can be something like even during COVID, um, a lot of tenants were actually moved to percentage rent only deals because they did not want to penalize the tenants for not being able to pay base rent, right? And so there could have been times when days where, you know, the government shut the world down, they, they're not doing any business, but then there are days where they're doing tons of business and, you know, it goes both ways, right? So, yeah. but the landlords on, you know, there were many landlords that we work with that ultimately did that and the, the tenants actually were grateful, and they did not feel like they were being jabbed or, you know, the landlords reaching in their pockets. In fact, they thought that they felt the opposite. They were giving them an opportunity to succeed and to stay alive. So really, it's, it can, I know how it, the market perceives it and how someone who may not be in the business would perceive it. But it's definitely something that can go both ways. No, and I'm sure tenants really appreciate that flexibility. And, you know, um, as you said before, it's all about relationships. A tenant that is going to be underwater during COVID or not able to operate and pay their rent. If they have a landlord that is going to give them trouble and whatnot. Because I know a lot of uh, commercial leases, the the rent had to be paid back. There wasn't any sort of rent forbearance or forgiveness, but a lot of uh, landlords made pretty creative ways to structure that and, and work with their tenants. It was a the most unique time in my career for sure. And um, there, was, there was no one approach that necessarily was the best approach. Um, and unfortunately, you know, every ownership entity, every tenant, they're all in unique positions. And it's one where, um, to your point though about relationships, I can tell you and give you multiple examples of partnerships between landlords or tenants that are still referenced today, two years after the fact, about how well or how poorly they were treated. And, and they never will forget that, good or bad. And it's both. All right, James. Thanks so much for coming and chatting on the podcast. Really appreciate your time and uh, excited to hear how things are going to go forward with the company and, you know, go Bears. Go Bears. Thank you for the opportunity and excited uh, to be on the inaugural show.